Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. By now, the world knows Justice Ginsburg has passed away at the age of 87 on September 18th. This was going to be our term preview episode, and it still is, of course, now with a new dynamic. An even-numbered court, likely soon to be odd-numbered again, and firmly dominated by Republican appointees. We have a packed show for you, including bringing on one of the late justices' clerks who attended her memorial this week at the court. But first, let's get the SCOTUS journalist's perspective. Kimberly, you've been covering the court for the past decade. Put this into context for us. Well, there's really no way to overstate uh, the importance of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, people may not know this, but she actually is one of a handful of justices who, even if she never made it onto the court, we'd still be talking about her today and talking about her legacy. And that's because of the work she did with the ACLU, setting up the Women's Rights Project and bringing cases before the Supreme Court that really, you know, set up women's rights and gender equality as we know it today. We need to take this case. This is not a case. This is a declaration of war. They could topple the whole damn system of discrimination. And so you were covering the court still back when Justice Scalia died, leaving the court even numbered then again for a bit. Uh, how is this time going to be different? What do we know from that experience about what's about to happen here? Well, um, immediately after Justice Scalia's uh, death, we heard from Senate Republicans that they were not going to uh, give any confirmation hearings to any nominee that President Obama might put forward. That was the same kind of thing we heard again, you know, right away, people coming out and not only talking about the legacy of these very important justices, but talking about what the confirmation fight uh, going forward is going to be. Now, I remember covering Justice Gorsuch's confirmation battle, and I didn't think it could get any more pitched. And then we had Justice Kavanaugh, um, which I think everyone can agree was uh, very heated. I think this one could have the potential to be even worse, just given what's at stake here and kind of how that history has all played out. And it seems like it's going to play out much more quickly than the last time, though, right? I mean, it seems like uh, it's all but a given that Trump is going to wind up nominating someone uh, this coming weekend on Saturday, and that nominee is going to be confirmed pretty quickly, even before the election seems to be Senate Republicans' plan, right? That's right. Our colleagues over at Bloomberg News are reporting that it uh, looks like Republicans are going to try to start confirmation sometime in the week of October 12th, and that would set up a final confirmation battle before the end of October. So uh, make sure everybody can get home in time for Halloween. I'm sure that's the goal. And so Justice Ginsburg was lying in repose at the court on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, and she'll be lying in state at the Capitol. Let's talk to one of her former clerks, Zach Tripp, who was at her memorial service and can fill us in about his experience there. Zach Tripp is co-head of Wild Gottschall's appellate practice. He's argued 11 cases at the Supreme Court. And the reason we're talking to him on this episode is he also clerked for Justice Ginsburg during 2007 and 2008. Zach, thanks for joining us and coming back on Cases and Controversies. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk to you. So 
We saw some really moving photos of over a hundred of Justice Ginsburg's clerks gathered at the court, outside the court for her memorial. Wondering if you can give us some of the behind the scenes on how an event like that gets pulled together. Did you know there was going to be such a big turnout from your fellow clerks? Uh, I mean, it does not surprise me at all that that pretty much everybody who could come back did. You know, I think it's a real testament to you know, her influence on, in particular on our lives, but on, you know, on the country more broadly, that that so many of her clerks came back. I mean, it, this is a, a very challenging time to travel. Um, a lot of the clerks are coming from long ways away, you know, getting on planes and stuff like that. You know, it's not like everybody is right here in the D.C. area. Most people probably aren't. But, you know, it's a it's a very powerful shared experience among the clerks. Um, and everybody knows that the year that they had clerking with her is just like a completely life-changing experience. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic has been going on basically for six months, and this was the first time I was like, that's something I have to be at. So I actually went down there with a group of friends um, on the last day that she was at the Supreme Court, and, you know, the turnout um, from clerks isn't uh, unique. There was people from all kinds of walks of life. It seemed like they're um, not just, you know, of course, women, but lots of men, even some preteen uh, boys that were there who were paying their respects. Um, it was, you know, overwhelming, and they were all sharing kind of um, what they meant to her. And wonder, wondering if you could share, um, you know, something special uh, from either your time as a clerk or afterwards um, that is going to be sticking with you throughout the years. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like standing vigil and watching all the people come through is really moving. Um, the, especially the families, um, like the, I'm going to probably get choked up talking about this, but the, um, it's like a very tangible, like illustration of her just profound impact, um, on just ordinary people's lives. Right. Uh, especially seeing, uh, like, so many young girls coming through with their families. Uh, I mean, I have two young girls myself, and so it's just, like, that really gets me. Um, like, that that she became the sort of the, the personal symbolism, like, the, the, the physical embodiment of the idea that, like, girls can do anything, right? And so... It's it's really powerful to sort of watch that uh, in action, watching the people come through. Um, so, I mean, I'd certainly in, encountered that before, and I can tell tell stories about that if, if you want. But it, honestly, that this has been it, itself like uh, definitely something going to stick with me. Yeah, and the setup of, um, you know, I think because of the pandemic, there was a necessity to have it be outside rather than in the Great Hall, which is itself a great space. But then, you know, you're looking out over the, you know, over the plaza and um, and over the Capitol. And I can imagine being up there from your perspective was quite powerful. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that was pretty amazing. So when you're up there, you can only see the people who are like immediately in front of the court, which at any given time is not that many people. Like, it, you know, it's the same thing when, if they were doing it inside, there wouldn't be that many people in the room at any given time. Um, but then when you walk out and go see the line, the line was like, I think it was five hours long. Um, and uh, we counted it out after one of my shifts where it was 15 blocks, city blocks long, 
Um, and I think at the time the, the wait was like three hours. Yeah, that seems something very similar to the line that we encountered, but um, seemed like everybody there thought it was well worth the wait. Yeah, and, and I think also that, you know, it's it's really heartening and moving to see uh, the sort of the spontaneous tribute, right, that had happened even before the formal one. Um, just the sense that this was something like people needed to mark. Absolutely. And so, Zach, wondering if... Uh, there's any from your back from your clerking days whether there's any particular uh fond uh, reminiscences that you have or you know any particular memory that you have from your time with justice ginsburg that you want to talk about i mean i i have many of obviously many but the you know the things that a couple of the things that like stick most closely with me like one and i'm sure you would hear this from any clerk that you would talk to is the really shocking amount of effort that she put into the job at all times. Um, she was a force of nature. I have never seen anybody work that, like, just push like that all the time on everything. Um, so, like, when I was clerking, I think she was 75 years old, and she was, like, routinely up at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, <laughs> like, completely common. I was telling a story the other day. She she called me at midnight on Thanksgiving. Um, and the best part about that, in, more in retrospect, is that it wasn't pressing. Like, there, the court has some things where the court actually needs to sort of move quickly. That was just ordinary for her. To be fair, Thanksgiving was over. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she waited. But, the you know, and... and one of the things that she did, which has made it so incredibly valuable, was that, like, so when you're working on an opinion with her or any written work, she'd ask you to, like, produce a draft, an initial draft, which you would think is great. But then she would go, she would, she would quickly realize there was, like, nowhere near what she was actually looking for. And you'd go through a whole extensive number of rounds of edits, like, often, um, where she would take the time to tell you why she was making every single change that she made. Um, a huge investment of time by her to sort of walk you through her own thinking and editorial process uh, until so sort of finally the end product is something that's like a completely 100% RBG opinion that's like totally perfect and every word is exactly in the right place. Um, but you sort of understand what it took to get it there. Um, and that's that's a very rare uh, experience to get that from somebody at her, you know, uh, uh, somebody of her caliber in particular. Yeah, we, uh, our producer, David Schultz, uh, did a podcast shortly after um, hearing about Justice Ginsburg's passing with um, Goodwin Liu of the California Supreme Court. And he talked about being mortified to learn that Justice Ginsburg actually proofread and like made edits on the bench memorandums that you all wrote, even though they would never see the light of day, really, um, at least not anytime soon. So... Uh, yeah. yeah, all in pencil. You know, uh, you know, she never, uh, and I think this stayed through to the end, at least to, to my knowledge, uh, all sort of on on pencil uh, with like a sort of a, a triple spaced uh, when you were sort of printing something out for her, so she had space to write below it, um, and 
but meticulous and like just many, many, many rounds of edits to get it to where where she wanted it to be. And so, Zach, we were talking a little bit before about how in some ways, uh, you know, how this is a lot all at once, different from, for example, how it was, for example, with the Justice Stevens, who retired on their own and then later passed away. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that from your perspective? Well, yeah, I mean, it it, it just is a lot to all take in all at once. Um, so as we were saying before, when Justice Stevens, he, you know, he, he stepped down first. And so you could, when he left the bench, you had time to sort of take stock of his career and what he meant uh, as uh, a justice or his intellectual impact and his sort of broader uh, impact. Um, and then, you know, years later when he passed away, you could sort of mourn his personal loss. But with RBG, you're getting all those things at the same time. And she also, you know, it has this really unique, I think, uh, or at least, you know, the Thurgood Marshall is the one other who comes to mind of somebody whose career before they became a justice had just like a momentous uh, impact uh, on society and uh, and on the law and just on people's lives. And so that's, you know, you're, you're taking stock of sort of all of these different things all at once. Um, and then also because just of the time in uh, with the election and the efforts to fill the seat or something like the, the sort of next phase of uh, pushing forward into what's next is happening also very quickly all at once, like right on top of, uh, of this, uh, it's, it, it, it's surreal and hard. Um, it's really, honestly, really, really nice to see the other clerks. Uh, obviously it's like a horrible situation to be seeing them in, but you know, we've all, we all went through this together, went through, uh, a very similar experience and, it's a small enough group. It's obviously a lot of people, like, but it's a small enough group that you you do know, you get to know the clerks, especially sort of in approximately your age range, you know, sort of give, give or take a couple of years where, like, the truth is they become good friends, you know, like my Brian, Tom, and Ruth Ann, my three co-clerks are wonderful people who I consider to be yeah, close friends. And uh, Brian Fletcher, I worked with at the SG's office for a number of years and so it's you know it's wonderful sort of getting 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 the band back together, um, even in, in in difficult times. Well, you mentioned that um, you know this was coming all at once on top of the fight for you know who might fill her seat, but it did seem like um, she was ready for that fight. Um, we we've all now heard you know her her last wish that she had, so it seemed like she knew what was coming. But you know she. She took it as far as anybody could ever take it. I think it, maybe this is another piece of it that is like a little bit shocking is that, you know, when when I clerked for her and she was 75, she was like frail and small and had had a, like a, a history of being in ill health and, uh, you know, and, and then had sort of a series of additional things. But she just would fight through and bounce back from one thing after another. And eventually you get to this sort of feeling that she's just like invincible. You're like, we're okay. And basically my, my, uh, my approach to it was to just never underestimate 
her, that there was like nothing you could ever, like ever think that she couldn't accomplish. Um, and so uh, I think basically at the end, it's just there's a point where it just becomes impossible. And so that's where she was. Well, Zach, we wish it was under better circumstances, but we appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, it's always nice to talk about her. Uh, you know, it was a, a wonderful and intense experience clerking for her. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll all miss her dearly. Well, that was great uh, to really get a look on the other side of the RPG Memorial. Now we're going to go to the second part of our episode where we're going to chat about what the future looks like, at least in the short term, as the Supreme Court kicks off its really unique uh, term on October 5th. When we originally started planning this episode, I think we thought we were going to talk about how all these blockbuster cases make it really hard for the justices to paint the court as an apolitical institution. Of course, that's very true now as we get ready for a really heated confirmation battle. So, Jordan, I guess one thing we should talk about is what does it mean for these October cases where we're just going to be sitting with an eight-member court? Yeah, so these October cases have really had uh, quite a life even before this. Remember, these were the cases that were supposed to be argued at the end of last term, but then the pandemic pushed them into the beginning of this term. So now after all of that, they're now thrown into potentially, uh, potentially more chaos here. At the same time, though... I don't know that any of these cases are necessarily going to be ones where, you know, Justice Ginsburg's absence is now going to have an immediate impact. There's a bunch of important cases, including the big Google against Oracle case, which we'll wind up uh, talking about more as the term goes on. But really, in the, in the short term, in terms of these October cases, it's really this just kind of handful of cases that were supposed to be argued last term. And, you know, the justices kind of just need to get them decided. And that's why they put them on the calendar at the beginning. But now they might be the most difficult ones to decide if it turns out that there actually is a deadlock. Right. And so what happens with those um, deadlock cases that they're four to four is that uh, the justices really have two options that they've traditionally employed. So they can go ahead and just issue a divided opinion. And that just affirms the decision below, but it doesn't create any precedent. And, you know, I've been talking with people over the last several days, and it sounds like that's something the Supreme Court doesn't like to do because it feels very unsatisfactory to mm -hmm. have the court, highest court of the land not be able to weigh in. But it is something that we've seen the justices do before. Um, after Justice Scalia passed away, uh, the court had before it not a case over DACA, the program that we all know that defers deportation for dreamers, but something really uh, more about delayed deportation for their family members. And the Supreme Court just decided to go ahead and issue a 4-4 decision. I suspect that was because it was they were looking at a really long period of time um, as an evenly divided court. Uh, and so they didn't do the other option. Jordan, do you want to tell us about what the other option is if there's an evenly split court? Well, they could set it for re-argument. Uh, that's something that's happened in the past. We saw it happen in a case that was actually decided last term, uh, not because of a, a death, but the McGirt case, the case about uh, criminal jurisdiction in Indian territory. Uh, the previous 
term, it was argued with Justice Gorsuch recused from the case just because he had sat on the Tenth Circuit where it, it came from, and so they set it down for re-argument and wound up being able to decide it with Gorsuch's tie-breaking vote. And so whatever the reason is that you have in even-numbered court, one thing you can do is set it for re-argument once you have the fifth person who comes on. And so that's one option. Yeah, more delay, though, for those cases, as you mentioned, that were already supposed to be um, all wrapped up. Right. Justice Kavanaugh wasn't on the court at the very beginning of the term. So there were a few uh, cases. I don't think any ones that needed to be re-argued, but some were decided uh, five to three, and he didn't wind up uh, participating in those. So it seems like if they're going to be abiding by that same uh, precedent or unofficial precedent, then whoever comes on to the court, whatever does wind up happening, it, it seems unlikely that they'd be weighing in if they weren't actually on the court yet by the time the cases are argued. Yeah, I can't remember. What was Justice Kavanaugh doing? Was he just like he had a vacation booked that he didn't want to... He would probably say it's the opposite of that. Of course, he was in the middle of the second round of confirmation hearings, um, this one dealing with allegations of sexual assault. So let's talk about just a a couple of cases before we bring on our guests that the court is going to hear as an eight-member court. They're going to kick off uh, Carney with Carney versus Adams. And this could be a really big business case. It could also mean nothing at all. Yeah, super interesting case. It is. You know, what it's getting at is really um, membership on Delaware courts. Delaware kind of out of these quirky laws where they require, basically require that courts be made up of more or less the same amount of Democrats and Republicans. And of course, somebody who identifies in as independent uh, is challenging these rules. And it's important because of the outside size role that Delaware really plays in corporate law. We'll see what the Supreme Court does there. Are there any cases that you are watching? Sure. The Google against Oracle case, what's been billed as the, what is it, the copyright case of the decade or the century? Century. And uh, Kimberly, you're a big jurisdiction nerd, so you're probably interested in the case that's coming after the Google v. Oracle argument on October 7th. Yeah, so that's the case uh, involving Ford Motor Company, and the court's going to decide a jurisdictional case. One thing that's interesting here is that a lot of the major cases that this case is going to turn on were written by RBG, a heavyweight in civil procedure. But even then, you know, is that a case, or do you think any of the cases are ones where it's going to really the, the outcome of the case is going to turn on Ginsburg not being there for this October session? You know, these are all the kinds of cases that aren't really those like big heated five to four cases where, you know, Justice Chief Justice Roberts is in the middle. Um, these are ones I think where we could see some odd lineups and or cases where we would just expect the Chief Justice to be with his more conservative colleagues. So it, her absence on the bench may not make a difference in these cases, but again, just have to wait and see. All right. So what do you say? Should we bring on our guest? Our second guest. Yes, let's do it. All right. Let's bring on our guest, Anastasia Bowden. She is a senior attorney at the public interest law firm Pacific Legal Foundation, a frequent player before the Supreme Court, and she practices constitutional law there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So one reason that we asked you on uh, is because I know that you have an RBG doll. So I thought you would be an appropriate person to have on this podcast as we preview uh, the upcoming term. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, you know, what she meant to you and kind of how you heard about her death? Yeah, I was actually on a call with my boss when somebody else started calling me at the same time and I just ignored it because I was on a call with my boss 
But then my phone started just blowing up. I had, you know, 20 text messages. My mom was calling me. My dad was texting me. Um, and as soon as I found out, you know, thank goodness my boss is so empathetic and kind because I just started crying. And, um, you know, I talked to my mom afterward and she said, you know, I'm so sorry. And it's so funny. I said, you know, I have no claim to RBG. Why are you sorry for me? But at the same time, they sensed that she meant so much to people like me and to so many of us. I think so many, um, and in particular, so many women and women attorneys felt this connection to her, no matter their political background, they just respected her because she lived such a different experience than so many of us. I've been thinking about the way she went through law school. One of a handful of women in her class, um, you know, found it was so difficult for her to find a job despite graduating top of her class. That was a totally different experience than I had in law school. And I just respect so much um, what she was able to overcome and, and the path that she set for so many of us who followed. Um, she was a real inspiration. So let's um, let's start getting into some of the cases that we're going to be looking at this term. You know, one of the first questions is obviously after we get past the obvious uh, grieving and loss of the situation is in terms of the substance of some of the cases that are coming up, Anastasia. Do you think that there are any cases, particularly starting in the October session, that we're going to immediately see the impact of Justice Ginsburg's loss on the court in terms of the result of any of these cases? It's hard to say. You know, the the conservative branch, the so-called conservative branch, already held a majority, so it's not clear if uh, her passing will tip anything. Sometimes it affects what cases the court is likely to accept coming up. Um, it's interesting because we're already coming off of a very hot button term. I mean, last term was just explosive. You had think of any controversial legal issue and it was there. And so usually quiet terms follow bigger terms. So this was probably already going to be a quieter term. And I think um, given that it's an election year and with RBG's passing and the whole nomination process, that probably just underscores um, the fact that this is going to be a quiet year. Well, we asked you on because you wrote an article called Looking Ahead, Deja Vu at the Supreme Court about the upcoming term where you say that uh, looking ahead requires us to really look backward. Can you tell us what you meant by that? Yeah, from the moment I was asked to write the article, I immediately thought, okay, this article is about looking forward, but the case that was on everyone's mind at the time that had just been granted was the Obamacare case, which for me is just such a strong sense of deja vu. I mean, I was working for Professor Randy Barnett at the time. Um, that case was before the court, and he's, of course, considered the intellectual godfather of the Obamacare case. So, um, that case is something I'm very familiar with. I helped write an amicus brief for it. And it just felt that the theme of this article had to be deja vu, um, looking forward and tells looking back. And then every case that was granted after that, just once again, felt like deja vu. We're going to see whether the Ramos case, which was divided, uh, decided last term regarding extending uh, a unanimous jury verdict requirement to the states, whether that applies retroactively. So we're hearing essentially the same case, but now whether it 
uh, applies retroactively. We're hearing a bunch of holdover cases that we had all been looking forward to hearing last term, gearing up, preparing. I mean, for us, at least court watchers, we had. And then those cases were uh, suspended until this term because of COVID. After the Supreme Court had to close its doors, they had to reschedule a bunch of arguments. So again, we have this feeling of deja vu. Um, There's a case that's going to deal with uh, the application of the federal ban on robocalls. Everyone's always fascinated when I say there's a federal ban because they're like, I'm pretty sure I got 20 calls yesterday from a robocaller. (laughs) But yes, there is a ban and the court decided a case on it last term and it's going to do so again this term, the very same law. So there's just this overwhelming sense of, of deja vu this term and um, again, that might be in part because that's what the court likes to do. It likes to lay low after um, deciding big cases. Well, and I'm surprised that you didn't mention the huge arbitration case that's already been in the Supreme Court that they will hear again. That one probably just slipped your mind because there's so much going on right now. <laughs> I, I just fell asleep <laughs> while you were saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, you probably needed to sleep, so you're welcome. <laughs> And so uh, following up, you mentioned the Obamacare case. And so th- obviously it's a case that's on a lot of people's minds, even people who aren't necessarily close court watchers. And they look at the recent news of Justice Ginsburg's death and they ask, is that going to be a case where, you know, may perhaps otherwise it was going to wind up being a case potentially on uh, so-called uh, party lines, perhaps again with J- Chief Justice Roberts, switching sides, so to speak, and potentially ruling with the Democratic appointees again to save Obamacare. And even before Justice Ginsburg's death, I'm wondering if you thought that this was necessarily a case that was heading that way, because it seems that one thing about this most recent iteration of of Obamacare that's different is that even from the conservative side, the claim has been criticized. And so I'm wondering for that reason, if you think that this was going to be potentially a case that was going to potentially come down along a partisan line, so to speak, and in turn, whether Justice Ginsburg's passing will make a difference in the eventual outcome of the case. On the one hand, I think all of us who had made predictions when Obamacare was first before the court um, were all sort of wondering what Chief Justice Roberts was going to do this time. We had no confidence that he was going um, to rule with the conservatives here. So this could have been a case where he would flip sides. But on the other hand, this case doesn't have the same sort of ramifications as it did the first time around. Um, the mandate, if they if they strike it down, it won't really change the status quo. It has no effect right now. now. There's no penalty for flouting it. And so I don't think the chief justice should feel like making a decision in this case um, requires him to uh, have to try to save the legitimacy of the court or the appearance of the court because it just doesn't have the same, the case doesn't have the same impact. It will really do very little in terms of Obamacare, practically speaking. They can sever out the mandate, leave the rest of it intact, and nothing will have changed because... Today, just as well as tomorrow, nobody had to abide by the mandate anyway. There was no penalty for it. So um, so as much as this case feels like a big case to all of us, um, especially it's the seventh time Obamacare is being heard before the Supreme Court, and it's just such a big case in so many ways. But this particular case, um, you know, I don't think the Chief Justice really has, has to think too hard about it. It's, it doesn't have any practical effect. 
So Obamacare, the gift that keeps on giving for the Supreme Court. Um, wonder for people who aren't uh, as close to court watchers as you are, if you could just give us um, a, a little background on what that case is about. I know we've talked a little bit about it, but I'm um, just kind of telling us what is at issue here and what is not at issue. Yeah, this case started uh, in 2012 when the original, the very first of seven so far Obamacare cases was before the Supreme Court challenging the individual mandate. That is the requirement that everyone purchase health insurance or pay a penalty. And the challengers had said that that was an unconstitutional use of Congress's commerce power, that Congress only has the power to regulate interstate commerce and the decision of one person in one state not to purchase health insurance um, is not commerce. You can't regulate that. It's a decision not to do something. And if if you can regulate the decision not to do something on the theory that in the aggregate it affects commerce, well, then you can regulate anything because anything in the the decision not to do anything in the aggregate is probably going to have large ramifications. Um, And so the chief justice sort of surprised everyone when he ruled that it was true that Congress could not do this under its commerce power, but this was in fact actually a valid use of commerce's taxing power. And that was very interesting because President Obama, for example, had you know undergone interviews where he said, this is not a tax. Um, the statute does not use the word tax anywhere. It, it refers to a mandate to purchase health insurance and a penalty if you do not. So most people didn't see it as a tax. And Chief Justice Roberts himself, in his opinion, said that this was not the most natural reading, but he said it was a fairly possible one. And he was going to uh, vote this way to uphold Obamacare. And this drew criticisms from the four conservative justices who dissented, who said, this is just not a tax. And we think that you're using a saving construction that's really inappropriate. Um, and we would have struck it down under the Commerce Clause. And uh, and so ultimately, we knew that there were five votes on the court to, to say that you could not pass um, this type of mandate under Congress's commerce power, but okay, fine, it's a tax. Well, you know, six cases later, and a new administration later, Congress reduces the tax, so-called tax, to zero dollars. And so now there is this mandate on the books, and there's no tax. And the question is, now that the tax has been reduced to nothing, isn't this just an unconstitutional mandate? It's no longer a tax, cannot be justified by Congress's taxing power. Isn't this now... Um, a use of Congress's commerce power um, that's unconstitutional uh, as held by those five justices under the original Obamacare case. And so, uh, of course, after the tax was reduced to zero, there was a new lawsuit. And a lot of people thought this was a little bit too clever of an argument, Um But it has won out, actually. The lower court held that, in fact, this was no longer a tax. It is a a mandate. It's unconstitutional. Um, And in fact, the district court in this case struck down Obamacare in its entirety. It said that the mandate could not be severed from the rest of Obamacare. So the whole act must go. Uh, The Fifth Circuit did not. It reserved whether it was going to rule on on severability for the lower court. But in any event, now it's back before the court. Uh, And here we are again, uh, deja vu. Instead of 2012, it's 2020. And we'll see if Chief Justice Roberts meant what he said when he said that uh, Obamacare didn't really mean what it said. So if it's true, though, that 
this case doesn't have so much at stake, or at least maybe perhaps not as much as prior Obamacare cases, then from the point of view of the people who are challenging the law, why put so much energy into this claim then? If it's not a big deal, then what's the big deal? Yeah, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit have alleged that even though there's no penalty, the law as written says you must purchase health insurance. And they said, the law says we have to, we're going to obey the law because it's the law. And therefore we purchased health insurance and we suffered an injury because of it. Um, and and that's, that's why they're in it. The states have also, there's a group of states, many states that have also brought suit on the theory that Obamacare is impacting their state budgets, that the mandate um, affects how much they have to allocate for Medicaid and and that, you know, Obamacare overall is having this uh, a burden on their budgets. So that's the state's claim. Um, you know, it's fair to ask, what do the plaintiffs care if you can just flout the law and not be penalized by it? But I think it's fair to ask, why is the government fighting so hard about it then? Um, if they claim, oh, it's just a choice, Obamacare now, it's just a choice, you can flout it if you want. Well, then why are they fighting so hard to to have it stay on the books? I think the question applies to them as well. Well, the Trump administration wants it off the books, right? That's right. The Actually, the, the administration had agreed that it was unconstitutional, um, although they disagreed about severability with the plaintiffs. They said that it could be severed, it could be you know, taken out of the rest of the act and the rest of the provisions must stay. But based even on that concession, that it was unconstitutional, um, a group of states intervened on the other side. And so then we have, I don't know, almost 20 states or so now defending the law and the merits and saying, no, 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 this is totally constitutional. Well, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you taking the time to um, look ahead by looking back with us. Thanks for this lovely distraction. There's nothing I'd rather do than talk about SCOTUS. Well, that was a great interview, and I think it's really interesting that the Supreme Court has scheduled this case for the week after the election. So I, want, I wonder what the impact would have been if, if, even though they've said it in their briefs, but if the federal government you know, were to say, in the middle of this pandemic, the entire Affordable Care Act should fall. That's, that's a pretty dramatic headline. Yeah, it's a little awkward while they're saying that they're trying to protect pre-existing conditions, the thing that the law already does. But we'll see um, what happens. Uh, Just one more thing to note that after we chatted uh, with our guests, there was a new list uh, of potential Supreme Court nominees. Lists are very popular these days in which she appeared as a possible libertarian choice for the Supreme Court. Um, So, I mean, of course, being on this podcast makes her well qualified for that. That's true. She has some other other qualifications too, I guess, but that's the one that sticks out to me. Yeah, so uh, we wish uh, her the best on that if uh, Libertarian presidential candidate Joe Jorgensen uh, does wind up uh, clinching the presidential bid, but as with everything else this term, we'll just have to wait and see how that unfolds. Well, until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglog.com. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson. And I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.